Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast friends. We have a special podcast today with famed short seller Mark Cahotes. Mark has investigated and brought down some of the major frauds in history. And earlier this year, he set his eyes on crypto darling FTX. Unless you've been living under a rock, you must be aware of the bankruptcy of FTX and other related entities. But the bigger story here may be the alleged fraud, which includes accusations of stealing billions of dollars of customer deposits, providing execs with billion-dollar loans, and more. This is a story that almost seems too insane to be true. Hindsight bias comes for us all, and while many people now say the red flags were clear as day... There were very few people criticizing Sam FTX before the recent couple of weeks. But on August 1st of this year, Mark tweeted, The best short on the board is this fella, SPF. John Ray is the new CEO and chief restructuring officer for FTX and famously oversaw the liquidation of Enron. Given his decades of experience in the role, the statement he made in the recent bankruptcy filing is eye-opening and summarizes the depth of the situation. Quote, Never in my career... Have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here at FTX? End of quote. Since this is a story that seems to be changing by the day, we recorded this on Monday, November 21st. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with famed short seller, Mark Cahotes. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is good. It's something I've wanted to do for a while. So we sure have plenty to talk about. Tell our listeners where we find you today. I'm in Manhattan, Montana. So I'm about 20 miles west of Bozeman. You guys got some snow up there yet? What's the vibe like? There's snow here and it's it's cold, but it's warming up. We'll get to maybe freezing tomorrow. But it's, it's lovely. Is this home for you now? I know you were in Cali at one point or Carolina at one point. What's main home base? I go back and forth, but I'm a Montana resident. My son lives in California, so when it gets too cold and dark here, I go Sam or go out and about. But Montana's lovely. It's peaceful. have some pals here, so all's good. We spent some time in Livingston when we were uh, hiding from the pandemic in uh, world-class fishing and awesome country up there. Mark, we're going to talk about all things fraud, evil doings, and things that would just make listeners blush. I've been a long time follower of your work. You know, we've had a handful of short sellers on the podcast over the years. Some of my favorite people in the world are short sellers. There's less of them today than there was maybe 10 years ago. I feel like the short seller during the 2010s became more and more extinct as the crazy times, you know, carried on. But uh, so I've been wanting to have you on for a while and then finally got a good excuse recently because you have been early and often on a number of frauds, but one in particular that has recently come to light, which you described as, I think, 
Sam Bankman Freed will make Bernie Madoff look like Jesus Christ. So give us a little rewind. Give us the origin story of this idea. I would love to kind of walk through and then we can kind of dig into all things FTX as our, our first chat. Well, I think I was conservative with the Bernie Madoff quote, actually, as time goes on. So it's kind of funny. So I'm involved in something called T0, which is a sort of an offshoot of Overstock. And they have a, I'm a big believer in in time and digital securities and tokenization. I think everything is going to get digital. I think everything can be tokenized from sports players to assets, to art, to music libraries, to companies, to private investments. And, and all tokenization is for anyone out there is you basically sell a partial stake or a partial piece of the action whether it's a future stream of an individual's earnings or an asset, what an artist or art could be worth, things like that, that trade. And T-Zero has this exchange. So about a year and change ago, I recruited for T-Zero the, their new CEO. I mean, it was the CEO as of February, who was a 30-year industry guy from ICE, which runs the New York Stock Exchange. And ICE made a 20% investment in T0. And because I think this is great. But at the time, they had all sorts of funky competitors who were willing to spend all sorts of money to compete against them or in the space. And one of which was this FTX. I think little things are important. I don't focus on the shiny object. I focus on little things that, that don't make sense. And the more things I find that don't make sense, the more intrigued I get because I'm sort of a detailed person. And when you're a criminal or you're a fraud, you sort of forget the little things. You, you're so wound up in your fraud that you have to worry about the big picture. You, you slip and fall. So I've sort of been watching this SBF character since really about a year ago. And I really sort of listened carefully to what he was saying. And every time he talked, he made absolutely no sense. One of his interviews made less sense than the next. And when asked to describe whether it's his trade or how he made his money or how he does things, I've said it a few times, he talks like he's driving in a figure eight. You know, nothing makes sense. He can put three or four words together that make sense and everything falls apart. So I said, this guy's intriguing because I think he's a complete fake. And then I started looking at the LinkedIn of all his employees here and abroad, and they're nothing more than glorified interns of, you know, you wouldn't hire any of these guys. Then I started looking and trying to figure out who actually could run this exchange because running exchanges is, this is complex stuff. So I go to the T zero guys and say, what's everyone saying about this Sam Bankman Freed and, you know, the main guy, Goon, said, you know, most people think this guy's just completely full of shit, but he's throwing money all over the place and he's dangerous. I said, you know, I started thinking and I said, you know, in all my big trades, you know, where I've done really well. And even the trades where I've done horrible. And there's plenty of those. I always remember everything. I remember every detail. I remember where I was, who I was talking to. I remember key players. I remember where I put it on. I remember events at the time. I remember every single detail of everything. So, you know, Learn Out and Houseby, which is, you know, where some people know me from, at the time was the biggest fraud in Europe. To this day, I can tell you exactly who I was talking to when, and that was 23 years ago. When you mentioned that, I mean, I, we can't skip over that because that that's up there, like a, that's like on the, the hedge fund Mount Rushmore Hall of Fame of, you know, frauds and trades. Can you give the listeners just a, a very quick description for the younger crowd who may not may not recognize that name. What was the business and what was the short selling opportunity with that one? Well, anyone can also Google me because there are some great stories about me and some of these crazy ass things over time. And, and, you know, there's a couple Harvard Business School cases, but this learnout almost put me in the grave. You know, it's spelled L-E-R-N-O-U-T and H-A-U-S-P-I-E. So there are two guys, Yo Learnout and Paul Houseby. So I don't know. This is back when my son was young. He was born in 87. So this is about 98-ish. He was born with cerebral palsy. 
he's, you know, he doesn't walk, but he's very smart, talks fine, went to regular school. He's great. He's 35 now. So at the time, I was looking for speech software for him. You know, at the time, speech software was was very starting out. And the hottest thing allegedly on the market was this learn out how to be speech software. So I went and did some research on it and figured out very quickly it didn't work. The stuff that worked was dragging the learn out stuff didn't work. And the stock had a sold at a big price. And Microsoft was their largest investor at the time. And I started looking at the numbers. The numbers made no sense. They had a lot of inter-party dealings. They were basically selling stuff to themselves. So it was also touted by Cowan and the analyst. I always say, I bet the jockey, not the horse. The analyst was always pushing fraud. So I had great intrigue in the stock. So when I started kicking around how this stuff doesn't work, I then called their competitor, Dragon, in the time the CEO was a guy named John Shigari. And I said, this learnout stuff doesn't work. And he said, you know, we don't know how they're getting their numbers. We don't know how they're doing anything. We don't see them anywhere. No one's buying them. So, you know, sort of to make a long story short, they announced huge projects in Korea, which I checked were fake. They announced they would be on the Palm, which for all those who are probably under 35 was the predecessor to the Apple iPhone. I mean, it was just a huge hype thing. And we're short this thing at 35. I think they took the stock to about 110. I had a radio show at the time called Facts from the Other Side of the Tracks. I was outlining this learnout story. I mean, this is when internet was dial-up, folks. I mean, this is before things were really jumping. And we were just getting absolutely fucking destroyed in this thing. And I knew I was right. And, you know, it becomes risk management, if you will. And we're covering on the way up so we wouldn't be put out of business. But, I mean, this stock was up four times on me, which taught me the Jaguar out of the tree axiom, which we'll get into shortly. So after one of the shows, you know, and I'm writing letters to the SEC, talking, you know, I'm just, I'm doing everything I humanly can on this thing. And it's killing me. I get a call from a guy, Michael Faraday. Again, this is 25 years ago, and I'll still remember the guy's name. And he calls me up and he says, you're dead right on Learnout. I said, well, it's nice of you to say so, but what gives you such confidence? He says, I'm the former head of domestic sales there and everything is completely made up. I said, really? And, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, would you want to be talked to the SEC? He said, totally. So I called up the guy who was working on this at the SEC, Rich Sauer, who I ended up hiring years later. And I said, I found a live one for you. He used to work there. He says, the whole thing's fake. He says, would he talk to us? I said, yeah, he says he'll talk to us. So I let it go. Next morning, Faraday calls me and said, what did you do to me? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I was just served a subpoena by two U.S. Marshals yesterday on this learn out and house. Then I knew we were sort of cooking. You know, one thing led to another. You know, we're working with the journal. You know, at the time, Mark Merrimount was the motherfucker. What's in charge? The best guy going. And a young Jesse Eisinger and the guy who was the bureau chief in Belgium was uh, John Kerry who did the thing on Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, but he was a young guy back then. So one story led to another. Turned out that every single thing at Learnout was completely made up. Everything was made up from Korea to the US to guys then got arrested, then they went bankrupt and it was a mess. I mean, the stock went basically 35 to 120 to zero. I mean, it went to zero. It was worthless. But the thing almost put me in the grave. And at the time, and this is back when a billion dollars was a lot of money. This thing was capped at $12 billion. It was the largest fraud in Europe. And there was a lot written about it. And there was a lot of exploits. But, but fuck, it was hard. I mean, I look back at it now. I'm just wondering why I still do it. But I'm kind of like a moth to a flame or like why race car drivers do what they do. So I have a nose for this shit. And it's the small stuff that you figure out where... If a product they're hyping just doesn't flat out work, you start digging in. But it takes a lot because there's a lot of money being pushed around to try to get things and to perpetrate these deals. And people do not want you showing up to break up their party. 
They do not want you involved at all. You know, it's funny. We've gotten into a lot of arguments in Twitter over the years. And my role is usually defending short sellers. And I was like, look, short sellers are a national treasure. If you think the longs or the government or other people are, are going to ever uncover fraud, like you're out of your mind. And so people are always saying short selling should be banned or whatever. And I say, look, I know a lot of short sellers and particularly the older ones usually go into two camps. They're like, this is too much work. I can't deal with this anymore. Or they're driven often by purpose, you know, and it feels like you're sort of in that camp. There's a great quote from the first Avengers where they were talking to Bruce Banner and uh, Black Widow says, you know, I need you to be angry. He says, that's my secret power. I said, I'm always angry. So there's a certain purpose of uncovering, you know, people that are doing something, you know, unfair, illegal. We've talked a lot, about, a lot about it in the investing world. So anyway, we often get into it with people on Twitter. But if you think that like the journalists or even the institutional investors won't cover these, like they won't. Like often it's the people who are doing the real deep dives. And it's a thank, in many cases, it's a thankless task because you're hated. The companies hate you. And in many cases, you, you've experienced this more than anyone. They come after you, but it's a good feeling in the end when you get it right, for sure. I mean, I know what it's like, or I think I have a really good handle of what it's like if you're Reggie Jackson and wherever you go, they boo the living shit out of you. And then you hit a three-run home run to win the game and, you know, you are what you are. I mean, I am what I am. I mean, I've uncovered more of this stuff than everyone put together times three, everyone who's out there. And I'm the short tight can stand are these smash and grab guys who, who come with a store and the stock goes down, they cover it, never to be here from it again. I mean, I just, I go at these things to the end. I mean, I start the game. I plan on finishing the game. I don't need a reliever in the second, third, or seventh inning. I mean, I think I go I go the mile and I'm 62 and I'm I'm more active or vibrant or uncover more than guys half my age, you know, times five. So, I mean, I take pride in my work. I take pride in what I do. I don't make shit up. I mean, I've been sued. I've been threatened. I've been investigated. I mean, it's just all over the place. But at the end of the day, I got plenty of money. So it's not really for the money. It's more, as you would say, for purpose. And, you know, when they put me in the ground and people are there, I mean, I think I've moved the needle. I think I've made, you know, the world better. I think I made people's lives better. I've put a lot of really horrible people out of business and in prison. So there is huge, you know, purpose to giving it back. You know, some people want to work at church. I'd rather expose guys and help out the small guy who gets fucked by these people. And, I must have, you know, seven, 800 DMs now from people who got out of FTX on my thing after watching Hedge Eye. I mean, it's a, I mean, there's been 5 million views of that Hedge Eye thing now, but it's a shame people didn't see it, you know, 5 million times before the thing happened. But, you know, I don't have a fund. I don't have a business. I'm not trying to sell anyone anything. I don't have a financial PR firm. It's just me. So, you know, some stuff gets traction, some stuff doesn't, but, you know, I have my Twitter and that's kind of it. I remember following in real time with you, a lot of the travails of the memetics. Is that how you're saying it? Uh, yeah. That one, which we yeah. don't even have to get into. We'll post a show note listeners, or otherwise this is going to be a five hour podcast. But that story alone, like it used to cause me sweaty palms, just reading parts of that story where it seemed it's still, like, it's, you know, my, my medics <laughs> and I are still going. I mean, you know, for those who don't know it, you know, you can Google me, FBI, FBI paid me a visit, CEO of my medics, who's a crook, who ended up going to prison on my work, bribed a senator, senator got the FBI to visit, the FBI wouldn't turn over documents, had to sue the DOJ and, F and FBI in federal court on a FOIA. I've since, I mean, the, the funny, not funny, part of the story is the FBI said there were four pages on me, you know, and they'll, <laughs> they'll give them to me in four they said between four months and four years when we did the FOIA request. So four pages. So my lawyer says that's bullshit. So we sued him for it. And after we sued him, the FBI came back and said, we made a mistake. There's not four pages. There's 1,168. So the FBI has 1,168 pages on me. So I now have those. And it be fun when you live tweet them all over your rum punch uh, recipe. Uh, <laughs> There's going to be some hell to pay at some point in time, but we'll, you know, my lawyers are working on some stuff, so that'll be interesting. So that's, but doesn't stop. Just doesn't stop. 
So you were talking to so you're funny because you're like, you know, I remember all these events from years ago. I have like the opposite brain. I go to bed at night. It's like the computer unplugging and like rebooting every day. It's like you asked me what I had for lunch yesterday. I'm like, I don't know, man. But the SBX. So you, you saw something. You heard about this guy. You're like, all right, something about what he's talking about doesn't compute. And then, you know, the thing about the whole short selling world, it's like a forensic, not just accounting investigation where just like you start peeling onions or there's just layers. What was sort of like the next clue or the next hint that you came uh, across that something is amiss? So his story didn't make sense. And his story about how he made his money in Korea didn't make sense. Just made no sense because the people who I know know that crypto. And again, I haven't. I've never traded a stick of crypto. I've never been long a dime. I've never been short a dime. I just don't touch the stuff. But the people who knew that trade, that Korean arbitrage, said it's very difficult. You need like money deposited locally. Uh, you need to bring cash to the exchange to do this trade. And this is some 20-year-old guy with Osbergers or on the spectrum or God knows what's wrong with him. You know, you know, it's not easy to raise money. It's not easy to raise money if you're legit, not easy to raise money if you're a track record. You look like this guy. It's to me, it would be impossible. So he had no mentor. He didn't say that Warren Buffett gave him the money or George Soros gave him the money or Med gave him the money. There was no specifics, no mentor or no anything behind this. And when you make no sense and you can't explain a trade and you can't explain where you got your money and you can't and you have no exchange thing, I'm starting to think that this whole thing is entirely made up because I can't grasp anything that's true. Normally, you can find seven things that are true. Yeah, the guy's a PhD. Yeah, he did graduate where he said, yeah, there is some science behind it. Yeah, the thing works in some aspects. You know, normally it's a shade of gray. But this is getting very black and white. And then you start seeing anecdotes out there where he's, you know, these fraudulent crypto guys, whether it's Celsius or Voyager or Scaramucci and his failed firm. He's putting real money in these things, you know, in front of the bankruptcy wall, not behind it. It's not like he's buying these things at three cents on the dollar. He's buying them, you know, front end and getting wiped out you know, as these things go bankrupt. So you say not only that, the guy is like stupid. Then he has a partner named Gary Wang. And Gary Wang, if you go try to look into him, all you can find is maybe one picture and the picture with him at Sequoia with his back where he's facing a computer. And you can't find anything on this guy. And then I found something that that indicates to me is with the, he's a CCP party member. Same thing with his chief operating officer. So I'm starting to get everything where it lines up. And again, interest rates are higher. Crypto volume is significantly lower. Crypto has crashed. And this guy claims he's doing outstandingly well. The weird part about that, too, is like the first law of investing is when you have an arbitrage situation, A, and you publicize them, but B, they go away, right? Like particularly like the, when they use like the finance textbooks 101 description of arbitrage is like gold trades in New York at a thousand and London at 1200 and it's an arbitrage. We're like, okay, well, that makes sense. But then everyone does it and it goes away. So like eventually, maybe in the early days, you might have even had something, but uh. it just none of it made sense. And then on top of that, finally, the Chief regulatory officer, I mean, I know some, prof I don't play poker at all, but I know some professional poker players, real guys. One of them calls me up and says, you know, by the way, the chief regulatory officer at FTX, a guy named Dan Freeberg, was the subject of this poker cheating scandal a few years back at Ultimate Bets. So I looked into it, and this guy Freeberg is a complete criminal. I mean, the New York Post over the weekend wrote about him, and they quoted me saying I was raising hell about Dan Freeberg, and you know everyone just blew it off. But this Dan Freeberg is a poker crook, and so I said, and I publicized it enough on Twitter, you know, back in May, June, July. What kind of company, legitimate company, would have crook as your chief regulatory officer? 
and it wasn't on his LinkedIn and he scrubbed his CV. And it's kind of like, you know, if someone worked for me and they covered up their resume with something bad, I mean, they'd be fired in a minute or you'd give them two minutes to explain why they did it. Then you'd fire them on the third minute. So you take everything and then you add Freeberg, who's the chief regulatory officer, who's a crook that's still there where they made claims where they were FDIC insured, where in fact they weren't. And the FDIC writes them a letter. You put it all together, you have something that's really bad. So I package all this up. The crazy part about the Freeberg situation is, you know, there's a phrase when, when looking at companies like success leaves traces. You look at good CEOs, good managers, you know, people follow those. But the converse corollary is true. Like if you look at particularly these pump and dump frauds or these like penny stocks where you have these CEOs that you see ones that like half the time they're in Salt Lake City or Vancouver, you know, right? But you see them continually to perpetuate. And if you're an honest company, there is, I don't know, 10,000 lawyers or chief regulatory offers you could hire that do not have a shady background. And if you're a company that is supposed to be, you know, particularly growing and, and making a ton of money, you can afford to hire the top law firms in the country. <laughs> like you don't have to hire the one that helped a cheese scandal. Like what? That's just it. So at this point in time, you know, it's not one thing. It's everything. And again, I'm not, you know, I went to Babson College. I'm not some Harvard or Yale guy and I'm not a crypto guy and I'm not saying the algorithm's wrong, but every rock I turn, something it's something bad. So I package this all up, right? And I go to the Bloomberg crypto team in London. There's five of them there. This is in early July. This is July 2nd. And I said, this FTX is a total fraud. And here it is. Here's all the issues. And you guys should sit down with Sam and sit down and tell him you need Gary Wang there and start asking him these questions. So the head lady says this is too much work, you know, it takes too much time. If we do that, they'll never talk to us again. We'll lose all access. It's bad for business. You know, all you have all these unsubstantiated, you know, stories. I said it's they're, they're substantiated. You know, Dan Freeberg is a fucking crook. He is putting money in front of these failed frauds in front of bankruptcy. No one can explain this trade. No one can explain his mentor. No one can explain where he got his money. No one can explain these interns running a complex exchange, you know, with top financial professionals. Everyone can explain how he's paying for access. It's a great story if you can lock these guys in. And they came back and they just said, pass, you know, it's too much work and they don't want to piss him off, you know, and it's my word against his word. And it really fucking pissed me off. You know, and I just, you know, I just kept tweeting about it. I called him as fake as a $3 bill. I mean, I was just, I was just going after him as going after him can be. And I didn't give a fuck if I got sued. I mean, I'm sued plenty and I've never lost. And it's just, it was just crazy. And then, you know, McCullough, the hedge eye guy, you know, he follows me on Twitter and he says like, what's going on? I said, well, I'm speaking at your conference or whatever in, in early October, I mean, I'll talk about it then. And I just laid it out. And I said, this is just, just absolute garbage. I mean, I think I made it very clear. I could have gone on for a couple hours on all this shit. And then, and then sooner or later, this, this thing hit the fan shortly, you know, a month later. And, you know, it's kind of like, here we are. And what was sort of the inflection point? Cause you were talking about this, you know, spring, summer. And then, I mean, he was on covers of magazines, very recently he's on covers of magazine he's on nbc news he's on all these news programs he's on cartoon network which i call cnbc he's on all these things and the inflection inflection was you know one of these you know crypto rags got a hold of some documents and basically said that ftx is illiquid or insolvent because, of course, they were using these tokens to pay people and the tokens were liquid and it was basically a huge Ponzi. So they started pointing it out. And then the CZ guy of Binance fame, who owned a bunch of these tokens, kind of realized that this guy is, you know, kind of rat fucked and sort of the jig is up. And that now that this token caper, if you will, this token scheme is slightly uncovered you know, he might as well put pressure on it. And he said he's selling his tokens. And 
that Caroline lady, you know, Bankman's girlfriend who went to MIT, who said she doesn't even use math to trade, you know, the head of Alameda. Again, she was one of the imbeciles who I scouted out on LinkedIn. And I said, for the CEO of Alameda, which is this crypto trading hedge fund, this lady, you wouldn't trust her to walk your dog. I mean, she's so incompetent. So she tweeted out that, you know, FTX will buy all these tokens at 22. And DZ said, no, sorry. And these tokens are now at a penny or less than a penny or whatever. And that sort of unwound the whole thing. And my peers in this business, my fellow skeptics, you know, all three of them who are out there, I talked to some, some really sharp guys, you know, not household name guys, but I think they're really good. They said, like, why are you doing this? You don't stand to make any money. You know, there's no trade in this thing. You know, there's no trade in it because I could have been short these FTT tokens. I could have been. And they did go from 35 to a penny. But I would have lost all my collateral if I would have been at FTX. I could have made 5 million bucks. But if I lose 5 million bucks in collateral, I'm down 5 million and never would be profitable from the trade. And I trust none of these foreign exchanges. So there's no trade to be had. Because, you know, in that Goldman fiasco I was involved in, I lost my collateral at, at Lehman. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it gives me PTSD. So there's no trade to be had. And my peer said, why are you doing this? I said, well, I just can't stand this fuck. I can't stand how he's buying access politically. I can't stand how he's duping people. I can't stand what goes on. And I can't stand that I'm being ignored. I can't stand that that I have something to say. And, you know, Bloomberg knows me. I'm on the fucking Bloomberg. They did a huge piece on me a couple of years back in, in Bloomberg magazine. You know, some 10,000 word thing. Bloomberg knows me like really well. And it's kind of a little bit of that Michael Jordan kind of stuff in me, you know, that there's no greater motivator than disrespect. And I had something to say. And the fact that they wouldn't, that people wouldn't listen to me, I figured then I got to speak a little louder. This is what's so great about Twitter and social media these days. Look, obviously, there's a lot of downsides to that town square. But let me give you an example. It's like we had, we had uncovered, and these aren't as bad as the FTX is the world, which are total frauds. But there was two companies in the investment space, billion-dollar money managers, where I said, look, they're not stealing your money, but they're, what they're claiming and their track record is 99.9% fictitious. I'm not 100% sure, but 999 but the whole whistleblower process is so hard to go through. You got to get a lawyer. You got to submit it. In both cases, they're like, we're not, we're, we declined to pursue this. But then the company was completely whitewashed to the people involved. They changed the track record. They deleted everything. So clearly, like, they called them up and was like, yo, you got to stop doing this or something. So at least, but, but like, they raised a billion dollars on an imaginary track record. Now, so then I was like, you know what? Forget dealing with the, this whatever I'm just going to start tweeting it out. And the we came across one, and this is what reminds me of FTX. We came across one that was advertising on Instagram, and they said, you know, 12% guaranteed returns, essentially. And I was like, well, you know, we all know, like, of the one, there's certain phrases you can use in different parts of the world that if you use it, everything else that follows doesn't matter. And saying 12% guaranteed returns is just, like, already, like, the biggest red flag. And, and it ended up being, and I, we tweeted out and a bunch of people talked about it and I kind of forgot about it. A year later, it turned out to be a $250 million fraud based out of Texas. It was called Prestige, I think, but it was like 10,000 investors got suckered into it. And the, 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 the part of that that hurt so much is like, it just gives our industry a bad name because there are some good you know actors out there. Long-winded story. The thing about FTX, and we'll get into due diligence in a minute, that again, should have been the immediate disqualifier. It's in their pitch deck. They had the phrase, literally, high returns with no risk. In everything about the investing world, if there's one thing you cannot say that's impossible, and it says it has no downside. I mean, it's like, how did anyone pass that single sentence? It's like, okay, good idea. We're going to go with this. It's beyond me. (laughs) With the auditor whose address is in the metaverse. Again, we can get into due diligence in a minute, but but I mean, the thing is, is that, as I told, you know, a couple of things that have been publicized, you know, I did this for society. I didn't do this for me. I did this to try to make the world better, to get rid of a hugely bad guy and to expose something that's horrifically bad. And in the time I've saved 
a lot of people a lot of money, but a ton of people lost a ton of money. I mean, I saved a fraction of a fraction, but the whole thing that's really wrong here is that this is a huge failure of the mainstream media, huge, huge failure of the regulators. It's a huge failure of the institutions who buoyed this guy. It's a huge failure of policy. I mean, this is, this is a huge failure across the board. I mean, at least Madoff dealt in U.S. stocks, was a U.S. guy, was a, under the watch of the SEC. People knew what was going on, and he'd been doing it for a long time. I mean, this guy, and, and he was older. I mean, this guy was 30, and I think I said in the New York Magazine piece that they did, you know, most people who are 30 who are worth billions, I look for something special in them. You know, there are certain people who are special. Same thing with ball players. You know, sir, you know, I saw a young Ken Griffey Jr. I mean, that guy at 19 was special. You knew the guy was special, right? I mean, he was special. You knew Bo Jackson was special. I mean, there's certain special guys. So if someone's worth reportedly $10 billion under the age of 30, you think they're special. And there's nothing about this guy who was special, especially he couldn't articulate how he made his money or who trained him. I mean, there's mentorship in this business. People learn that if you're good, you learn the tricks of the trade from someone who's legit or someone who would back you up or someone say, yeah, I, I knew that guy. I mean, my greatest mentor is, you know, Al Jackson. He was the tremendous food analyst and he's on Twitter now. And, and we go back and tells me how proud he is of me and, and brings tears to my eyes. I told him, well, I wouldn't be me if it wasn't for you. And I appreciate it. But, you know, if someone says, what's with this Cahotas guy? I mean, go talk to Al Jackson. He'll tell you about me. And you and others in the same thing. So, it, so it's not the sad part or the failure part. And why I continue to speak out and I'll speak out louder and more is, you know, maybe if there's enough tragedy here or enough of a crisis, People can learn from it, or maybe there will eventually be changes. So this shit just doesn't happen again. Or if it happens again, it happens in a much lower decibel level. There's less bang to the big bang. Well, there's like 20 creditors, I think, that are claiming nine figure plus of uh, damages. So it'll be, uh, there's, there's certainly some people that have been impacted. We'll see who it is. But the, the curious thing about this, this story what do you think with the media and people not looking into this, what do you think the seduction was there? Do they just want to believe a narrative that was prepackaged and they just kind of get blindsided? Because I've been tweeting a lot about the strangeness is a story to me about the laundry list of, quote, world-class investors and VCs that put a bunch of money into these companies. And I look at all the red flags and it, it's it's a football field of red flags. It's not one or two. I mean, there's hundreds of them that any, in my mind, any MBA junior analyst, if you gave him a checklist and said, okay, look at this investment, it would have been no, 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 no. Right. Like, like there would have been so many disqualifiers. What do you think happened? I think I kind of know what happened. I mean, I think that we'll get into one of my pet peeves shortly, but I think Sequoia and some of these name guys stand behind it. And people have done such little work on this thing that they just said, we'll follow Sequoia. Because I think the early funding round on this thing was very, very low. And it's kind of like a scheme. You know, you put a lot of money in low, very low valuation, because these guys aren't for prime time. And if you tell the story, I mean, a lot of Palomine, Russell put a lot of money in Coinbase at a very low valuation on a hope and a prayer. And he made a shit ton full of money. He's lost a bunch on other stuff. But, you know, there are guys very early in the early stage rounds of Coinbase made life changing money. I mean, generationally changing money. So they say if it worked there, it could work here. And yeah, the guy's a little funky and yeah, the guy's a little weird. But Sequoia's in on this and they do their work and they're smart guys. This guy's in on it. And he, you know, it's, it's always, you know, if you invest with smart guys, you should be all right. And no one bothers to look at the auditor and no one bothers to look at anything. I mean, these things are coming so fast and, you know, there's, they're not big funding rounds and you're not talking about a lot until you get into this $32 billion valuation. But the first round was not much money at all. 
So if someone says, I invested in the Series A and FTX and look at what it's worth and Tom Brady's endorsing it. And if you have Tom Brady and you have Steph Curry and you got Giselle and you got all these people and the guy's such a big donor and he's on stage with Bill Clinton and he's on stage with this guy. People get lulled into the rapper and the sex appeal of it and the doing due diligence part doesn't work. I mean, I've been in the hedge fund business, you know, and I managed an awful lot of money. And when people come in, you know, they did due diligence on me. They had private investigators checking out. I mean, they had people up my ass and everyone who worked for me up my ass like you wouldn't even believe asking me questions and shit like that. I mean, just crazy shit. They were all after me, but none of it happened here. And none of it happened because he sold the story. He sold the narrative and he sold the narrative that Sequoia, you know, and others and all these smart guys, you know, who are up 50 times on this investment, you know, it could grow to the sky and shit, you know, Bitcoin was at what? Six bucks. I mean, someone used once a Bitcoin to buy a piece of pizza. So six to call it 50,000. You know, that's tradable. You know, when people are told something went from six to 60,000, they'd say, yeah, I'd like to make 10,000 times my money. You know, that would work. And if someone told you the Bitcoin story at six, you'd laugh at them. You know, or most people would laugh at them, but the people who believed won. So I think there's a lot of that. I think there's a lot of fear of missing out. And I think the money that obviously this guy stole and who financially he paid his financial PR firm, I'll bet you the media is co-opted. I mean, the New York Times, all they do is write, used to write positive shit, and the same thing with Bloomberg, and the same thing with CNBC and the Cartoon Network. And, and hey, he pulls the same folksy Warren Buffett shit, you know, and I'm not a fan of, I'm not a fan of Warren Buffett. I drive a Toyota Corolla. Yeah, but you, but you live in a $40 you know, million dollar penthouse taking all sorts of drugs. So, the signs are there if you want to be a guy like me, or the signs are there if you want to be a guy like you. But guys like me say, you know, there's no stock in this. You know, the market's fucked up. Interest rates are going on. Mark, why don't you focus your time where you can make some money? Why don't you focus your time where, you know, you can, you know, do some bit? This is a private company. You know, the guy's weird. You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, you don't, you don't need to opine here. This is a big fish. What do you hope to achieve? I heard it all. right? And I said, if I think this guy's a fake and I think he's going to take the system into the dirt and then some, I owe it in my mind to do what I can to speak out here. Otherwise, I just wouldn't be me. I wouldn't be able to live with myself because the shit would like haunt me. Part of it for me is like, you know, I look at some of these things that come across my plate and sometimes I'm like, man, you know, I don't want to seem like a hater. I don't want to be a negative person about this, but it's often so egregious. There was a Ty Lopez who I don't really follow, but he was running a ton of ads on Instagram and I posted it to Twitter and the ad says $300,000 invested in our preferred dividends. We'll send you $60,000 a year in monthly payments. And I'm like, again, you can't guarantee these 20% returns. And then you call. So I signed up, of course, as one would do. And I call in. And the guy that you're talking to would not have passed a freshman level investing class. Like I'm listening to him. I'm like, is this a joke? Like, is this like, is this just like a call center person? They're like, no, it's the person ahead of it. And then he's like, actually, I'm like, so send me the docs. And he's like, what docs? I'm like, well, what, what am I actually sending you money for? He's like, oh, we do it on like a deal by deal basis. I'm like, okay, well, send me your track record for the, you know, the prior deals or your, your GIPS, you know, investing record, anything, send me anything. He goes, we require an NDA. I'm like, an NDA? I was like, I reviewed like 10,000 company decks. I was like, I haven't signed an NDA yet. And I'm like, I'm not going to sign an NDA. And they're like, well, we can't send you anything. And I'm just like, you know, flag, flag, flag. But it's they continue to, to do the ads. I, I keep tagging SEC enforcement. I'm like, look, these guys are like scamming people left and right. Therein lies the problem. The problem is when you had easy money, which we had, past tense, and you have no regulation, which we've had and continue to have, and there is no SEC. I mean, there used to be a time. I mean, let's say you're in your mid to late 40s, maybe in your early 50s. There was a time where you'd actually be scared of the SEC. If the SEC sent you a subpoena or a letter or a, 
information request, you'd be halted. You would think twice. You would say this isn't good. But now the SEC is so damn toothless and no one cares. Anything goes. And, and if anything goes, anything goes. And people, you know, say, you know, it's sort of like catch me if you can. I mean, I go out on things and people come back with, hey, I mean, I have 17,000 people blocked on Twitter. <laughs> I got, I, no, that's a, that's a fact. I mean, because I, I just won't put up with it because the quality of my Twitter feed is important. And if guys are sitting on there with a bunch of bullshit, I'll just block you. Because that's all I have. And, uh, you know, this Bloomberg thing is a real setback and it's a real tragedy. They passed on it and it's a shame on it. And the Times keeps the puff shit going. And talking to a guy at the Times on this Silvergate, this bank that I'm sure, which I think's total bag of shit. And he said, people won't talk to me because I work at the Times and uh, they don't like the Times coverage of FTX. That's part of the great thing about the citizen journalism nowadays is like you, we've consistently seen this failure of the mainstream media. And, and there are a couple of those time pieces, you're reading them and they're just like the most laudatory. <laughs> I retweeted it jokingly and I was like, like did like a long, you know, compliments about Madoff. And I was like, he was a great financier, chairman of the NASDAQ, had great hair, tennis player, parentheses, you know, committed a massive fraud. Like, and, you know, like da da da. It's like the times piece was basically that for. This situation, it was so bizarre to read. It almost feels like there's more going on to the story after that. Like you have the, the base case, weird situation, but then you start to get money involved in politics and charities and, you know, senators and, and all sorts of stuff. And it just gets weirder. It gets weirder after that. I think one of the issues is people are not just unwilling in this day and age to admit they make mistakes and admit they fucked up. And it's always now blame others or you try to whitewash history. And if I make mistakes, I make a lot of them because I've been doing it so damn long and I try to learn from them. You just say, I fucked up. You know, I made a mistake here. I was wrong. I took a huge loss and it sucks and I hate to lose, but you got to sort of own your narrative and own your label. And I think part of what's been going on is these mainstream media companies just don't admit they've made mistakes and people don't take pride in their work and they don't take this shit seriously and they don't realize the ramifications of this stuff and that, you know, it's the same thing with Cartoon Network, a.k.a. CNBC. I mean, I refuse to watch that shit. I just won't watch it because the stuff on there has cost people, you know, fortunes. And here's the funny thing about like failing is that, you know, if you fail with dignity, honor and honesty, people are OK with that. Like they give you a second pass. I mean, in America, half the great founders you know, if you're a VC investor, like investors that have failed and with dignity and honor, like they get funded again. And the thing that really kind of grated my nerves about this story on the institutional investors is to a T, they all, and I've been retweeting them, Sequoia had, you know, when they said, okay, talk about what happened. They say, no, we did careful due diligence. And then they pivot into this weird story about, hey, we have to invest in dreams and if we don't invest in dreams, like it's not our business. And then Ontario said it went through a tougher than usual gauntlet for an investment of that size with multiple investment committees. And then you have the whole tiger mess who's apparently been outsourcing their due diligence to Bain. And you're like, just one of you guys just say, you know what? You're right. We had FOMO. We made this mistake. It was a dumb decision. But like saying you did due diligence and missed it is like... A huge disqualify. I would redeem tomorrow. I'd be like, oh my God, you guys, like, what are you talking about? Well, Reuters called me on Ontario. I, they said, what do you think? I said, I think everyone involved in the process should be fired on the spot and bring in, in new people. Same with these other things. I mean, why can't you at least admit you did none? Because again, you know, I'm not a Harvard guy. I'm not a Yale guy. Anyone could have called me and said, what do you think? And I said, if you buy me a couple dozen oysters and a few beers, I'll tell you exactly what I think. I wouldn't touch this guy with a 10-foot pole, and here's why. And therein, I think, lies the huge trap here. And the huge trap is just because, you know, I used to say people spend more time reviewing a restaurant that they want to go out for dinner at night than they do on their investments. It's always a word of mouth, or I'm missing out, or this guy's doing this, or he's a smart guy, or you know, there's a whole underbelly of this. And I think we've sort of lost an ability for people to seriously and independently think. 
I mean, people just don't take the time just to be slow and think. And I think that's just kind of sort of really bad. And I think it's a shame. And people were defending a lot of these big investors by saying, look, they make lots of small bets. I go, that's table stakes. That's called diversification. We understand that. But if you're paying them two and 20 and that 2% on 10 billion or whatever it may be on some of these very large funds, that covers a large amount of junior analysts that should be thoroughly reviewing every deal. Like we're not paying you to FOMO in the deals that you do. Know. Like that's table stakes. You have to do this. So anyway, into my preaching stool. You mentioned Silvergate. What's that? Is that, I say it right? Silvergate? Yeah, Silvergate. It's SI. You know, Keith at Hedge, I did a follow-up last week and I said, I'm short Silvergate. Again, symbol SI. It's now 24. We can change ago. It was 36. They're the bank. They're the so-called on and off ramp into crypto. They brag that they do roughly a trillion dollars, did a trillion dollars of on and off investing in these exchanges and the exchanges kicking out the money. And I think it's a giant scam. I mean, their biggest customer was FTX and SBF was their so-called spokesman on their website. And I think there's going to be a huge pushback into banking and secrecy laws, or basically they're going to make what Silvergate did illegal. I mean, it's because you don't know the AML KYC part of this. You don't know where the money's coming from, where the money's going, how fast it's changing hands. I've talked to some senators lately, and suffice it to say that from a political standpoint, when they asked me what I thought, I said that you can't regulate crypto because you can't tell people what to do. If people like it, buy it. If people don't like it, sell it, don't be involved in it. And crypto will take care of itself. But what you can regulate is people using the U.S. banking system to on and off ramp shit in foreign exchanges, which are unregulated by the government. You can blow off the on and off ramps. You can blow them up. You can make this shit illegal stuff that you shouldn't be able to do. And that way you force domestic people into legitimate exchanges. I mean, I'm not a owner or shorter of Coinbase, but I think Coinbase at least runs a show that's domestically based where real guys sort of look at them. I'm Again, whether you buy stuff on Coinbase or don't buy stuff on Coinbase, that's a domestic outfit and it's regulated by real guys. So if you own stuff at Coinbase, it may be slow. They may, they may say there's congestion, but I think you at least get a fair shake here. All these offshore guys who are now going out of business one after the next, I just think it's a huge trap and to use any look of the U.S. banking system to facilitate these grow these, use these, enable these is just is just hideously wrong. And I think it's a bad business model. The, there's sort of a run on the bank going on. I mean, this company is losing deposits because people are pulling money out of these exchanges. And I think a last track, plus or minus, they have less than 10 billion of deposits, but let's say 10 billion. But 10 billion through a trillion dollar network, last I look leverage wise is north of 100 to one. So 100 to 1 leverage dealing with these off exchange guys where there's no, I'm not going to use the word guarantee because that'll piss you off. But I think there's a high likelihood that when the feds check for KYC AML checking in Silvergate's hen network, I think they'll find huge deficiencies. And I think the whole thing's not worth much money at all. I think it's a disaster. And, and the other thing is, again, this is anecdotal, but people who watch the CEO on the Cartoon Network, you know, like I'm doing this, I'm sitting on a bed with a with a white background. This guy's background is Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. I kid you not. So when you throw in religion in investments or try to hold yourself out as this religious type doing shady shit, that's a big red flag. So I think the Silvergate is very troubled. One of the things when you have a giant blow up like you do this FTX situation, and we've seen it many times over the years, particularly with financial companies, you know, there's reverberations. And usually it's not just like one or two firms or companies that get impacted. It's a lot, right? And, you know, this example with Silvergate and others, like it's it's probably not going to just be one or two. It could be end up being dozens, <laughs> if not more, of associated companies. 
Mark, we've certainly kept you for a while. I got to ask one or two more short ones before we let you off into the evening. Definitely want to have you back in the future. This has been a blessing to have you. For the young people out there that are curious about short selling or just, you know, who want, maybe they don't want to get into, you know, full-time short selling, but they want to learn a little more of like, I just want to understand that part of the world so I can put these toolkits. I want to be a better analyst. I want to be a more, you know, analytic thinker when it comes to not believing all the BS that people toss at me every day. What do you tell them? Any good resources, like other than listening to all your podcasts and, and media, your Twitter feed, definitely got to subscribe to your Twitter feed, but any books that were impactful or anything that you think is a good suggestion? Yeah, you got to follow me on Twitter at Alderline Eggs, that's for sure. That's a hard one because it is such a nasty, hard business. It is so volatile. It is so dangerous. It is so hard that I tell most people don't even try it or think about it. Right? Don't even try it or think about it. But if you have an active mind and you are interested in racing a car six inches apart at 230 miles an hour with 40 guys next to you, right? If you're interested in something like this, the first thing you do is try to find things that just don't make sense, where you can explain to a 10th grader why this doesn't add and why the story out there doesn't go. I use simple things like, you know, jaguar out of the tree. Don't climb the tree to fight the jaguar. Don't just because the stock is high and doesn't make sense, doesn't make it a good short. I mean, this year I've made a lifetime, you know, worth of money being short Carvana. Now, most of my buddies were short Carvana from 30 to 360 and they got carried out in a body bag. I waited for Carvana's numbers to roll over and there's a guy on Twitter who is really, really good. And he reached out to me and I said, this guy's dead right. And I put down a big bet and it's worked out great. You know, I'm 62 and I'm damn fucking good at this. And I've had huge issues over the years doing this. And I'm really good at it. Really good. So for just the novice players, I try to stay away from it. But for a Carvana, when you see rising rates, a slowing economy, used car prices going down, missing numbers, if you can't make it, then you're not going to be able to make it. But you wait for things to go bad. You don't anticipate things to go bad because when something goes bad, things tend to go bad for a long period of time. And most companies that miss, it's never a one quarter phenomenon. And I have friends who run big companies. I have my buddy, Brian Cornell, he runs Target. He used to be the head of stores at Safeway. I've known him for very close to 30 years. He's an outstanding man. He's an outstanding operator. We never talk about target business, not once. I never say, how's business? We never talk about anything target related. But what I can tell you is it's very difficult to run a company. It's business is very hard to do. And when you miss and things aren't right, it takes an inordinate amount of effort and talent to fix something. And the fixes tend not to be for a quarter. So a simple thing for those out there who are thinking of doing this, don't get involved till something misses. Because if it misses, they're going to probably miss again and again and again. And maybe if they're leveraged, they won't be able to fix it. And maybe then something turns into a bigger problem. Don't short something because you think it's too high or it's expensive. Because people who weigh 340 pounds can easily weigh 440 or 540, and they may not have a heart attack anywhere along the line. Now, they may, and then you've gotten lucky, but just be patient and see things through. And again, if you're new to this, get involved in stuff or think about stuff that you can understand. You know, whatever business you're in, you understand that business better than most. So find things in your business that you think are off and then just do research and see who knows what. But this is a dangerous game. I mean, the markets have never been this volatile, this dangerous. And, and I encourage most people not to do it. You know, books, you know, I'm not a believer in books on shorts. I mean, there's plenty of books that I'm in 
that have been about me through me about some stories and, and they're great and plenty of podcasts and things like that. But unless you experience it, you don't know what life is like. I mean, unless, you know, you're stepping back in the huddle in the shotgun and real guys are trying to kill you. You don't realize what it's about when you're playing with real money, but it's a tempting thing. You know, I enjoy it, but I'm not the most normal guy out there. It's different. And again, you know, follow me on Twitter. And if some of the stuff I say makes sense, I have an open DM and I respond to all of them. And I just try to help people out and just, I try to make people think, I mean, I think if you can think it through and it makes sense and you can explain it and articulate it, you know, you got a decent shot, decent shot. One of the things that I think about with shorting one listeners, if you're going to do it, you could always start really small. And so until you experience the short that rips your face off and doubles or triples, you know, in front of you before the story's over, it's hard to relate that feeling to someone who hasn't been through it. So being smaller is a good way to do it. But, you know, the nice thing about thinking in, in terms of short selling is often it can also inform the longs and vice versa. You know, if you're looking into longs, you see, well, here's the weak players or here's the ones that may not make it. Or you're looking at a short, but you're like, oh, well, here's actually a great company. I may want to go long this company that's actually a much better version. I mean, going back to reading, you know, about your pinball analogy in the early days, like that's a kind of an interesting takeaway of like, hey, I found something that may be working or not and looking at the flip side of it. But I think it makes you a better thinker, no matter what, to be skeptical. I think the trick is you got to think or try to think and try to think clearly. So, so Mark, looking back, I mean, you've been involved in a lot of great stories <laughs> in investing. You know, we love to ask the investors at the end of the podcast, we say, what's been your most memorable investment? And so this can be long, it can be short, it can be not even something that even mattered that much, but what's seared in your brain is the most memorable if someone's got to hold you to it. So my son's now 35 and at her when he was born, wine cooler was a thing. And we used to be short a company called Cannondag Wine. And we were shorted because I thought wine cooler was a fad and life was easy back then. And all you had to do was find a fad and run out of gas and people didn't have the money to squeeze people the way they do. And it was just a, a much more simple world. So we short Candigle wine, never forget it from 35. We covered it at seven, but I liked the guy who ran it. His son, I thought was an idiot, Richard, but the guy who ran it, Marvin Sands was a smart old guy. And when the business went bad, wine cooler went bad I called him up and he knew we were short. And I said, we covered. And I said, is there money in here to go along? I mean, can you guys not go out of business? He goes, we lost $2 a share last year in wine cooler. I'm going to shut wine cooler down. This is before FD. And our base business, you know, we can make a buck and a quarter. And the stock's at six. I said, you think you can make a buck and a quarter? He goes, Mark. And their biggest selling product at the time was Richard's Wild Irish Rose. And he said, the, the bottle costs more than the stuff that goes in the bottle. And he said, and we sell a bottle for $3.49. He says, it's highly profitable. He says, we can make the money. So stock six, we start buying the stock at six. And Fidelity, a guy named, a guy, a money manager named Neil Miller owned this because of wine cooler and Fidelity fired him. And the stock trades on the Amex. And the Amex was used to be the illiquid version of the New York Stock Exchange. I'll never forget this. So we got a call from a broker because we owned Canandaigua Wine at the time. And the broker says, we have 2 million shares of Canandaigua for sale. And this thing's trading 10,000 shares a day. I kid you not. <laughs> I said, and they said, you own it. They say, you want to buy any? And I said, we're kind of full. <laughs> you know, we're kind of full. Stock's four bucks. You know, we own it at six. And, you know, my partner, David Rocker at the time, I said, they got all this Canandaigua wine for sale. Jeffries does. And we say, well, let's call Marvin Sands, you know, and Marvin Sands owns half the company. And they call Marvin and Marvin says, I will buy all of it at three. All of it. 
And then we say, now that we have courage that we know the company wants to buy, we say, not so fast. We want some too. We want some too. So this all goes on at, at three. I think we own now 13% of the company. We file at three or nine, 12. I mean, this is, this is in the late 80s. I gave my son 10 grand when he was born. And I put everything he had. I mean, I think he was up to 15. I put everything he had in the stock. Every, every single dime he had in this. To make a long story short, this thing then turned into Constellation Brands. They ended up making their buck 20. The guy Richard, Richard Sands, turned out to be not so dumb. They bought Barton Beer, which was Corona. And the stock went from three to 60. And we sold it all there. Same shares right now would be north of 2000. <laughs> I, could have owned, I could have owned the state of Montana, the state of Idaho. Well, I mean, we, we own 13% of the company and we sold it. And I think we made 20 times our money and it was a huge win. But we made a bundle short. We made a bundle long. I made lifetime friends with the Sanses, and I'm very happy for him. I mean, it is now a huge ass. You know, it's symbol STZ, but for all you, as Kramer would say, home gamers, go back and look at this thing back in the 80s, the late 80s, 90s, to see where it was. That's where I got in. And it was the greatest thing I think I've ever done in terms of being short something cool and then turn around and making it long. So Ken Dagwood was it for me. It will always be it for me. And, you know, my son is worth a plenty now. So all because of that. That's a great way to put a bow on this episode. Hopefully we get to hang out in real world soon. I'm going to hit you up for your two secret ingredients in your rum punch that you haven't disclosed yet publicly. I'll give you a hint. There's four different flavors of bitters that go in the rum punch. So the secret ingredients are the bitters and the Meyer lemon juice. But when we meet, I'll give you what bitters to use. Deal. I'll take you up on it. Best place to find you, Outer Lane Eggs on Twitter. At Alderland Eggs on Twitter, it works. You won't be bored if you follow me on that thing, I'll tell you that. I try to keep it jumpy. Mark, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.